Good morning, Desert Springs Church. Let's stand together. 
hear from God's word as we begin our time. And I'd like for us to read this call to worship together as we call ourselves and one another to praise, to bless the Lord. Let's say this together. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Some of the promises we just read almost seem too good to be true, don't they? And some are too grand for this life, but they're still true. Because we don't praise the Lord just for what he does for us now. We praise for what he has done and what he will do forever. So let us awaken our hearts. Let us awaken our souls and bless the Lord together.
You can be seated. We just sang, Father-like, he tends and he spares us. Well, in today's message, we'll learn a little bit more about what the Bible means when it says that God is our Father. If you're new to Desert Springs Church, or maybe you're visiting for the first time this morning, welcome. We're glad you're here. We would love to meet you. There are two ways that can happen. Several of us pastors will be up front after the service. We would love to meet you for a few minutes, talk with you. Also, we'll have a staff person at the Connection Center, which is a desk near the front entrance, and they can give you some information about Desert Springs Church as well. For any of you, if you ever want to use email, contact us at info at dscabq.com. Well, our purpose here is corporate worship on Sunday morning, um, but we gather in smaller groups here at Desert Springs Church for many purposes, worship, for learning, for getting to know each other better, for serving the community around us. So let me give you one or two opportunities that are coming up for men. We've got our Gospel Men's Seminar coming up in two weeks. So this is Saturday morning. We're usually done by about 11 a.m. here at church, August 7. The topic this time is pornography. That's a critically important topic for men. I'm guessing there might be a couple guys in the room right now that might say, Ron, I don't view pornography, never have. That is in no way a problem for me. Well, I would say two things to you guys if you're out there. One, if you're telling me you've never struggled with sexually impure thoughts on any level ever, I would say you're either a liar or I want to meet you because you're the only guy in the world that could say that. But second, even if that's true, if you don't struggle in any measure with this, you're going to meet other guys who are struggling with it. And so if nothing else, you can come and say, Ron, I'm here. You can come through the door and say, I'm here for the other guys I'm going to talk to. I'm not here for me. In reality, all of us guys need that for both purposes, don't we? I need this for my own thought life. I need reminders from Scripture. And I need this for the other guys I'm going to talk to and minister to. Nathan Sherman is going to be our speaker. He's one of the best communicators I have ever heard. So uh, we're also bringing back burritos, so that's even another reason for you guys to come. Also, we've got our uh, members meeting coming up this Wednesday. So for you who are members, please put that on your calendar. Put a reminder to yourself. We will see you here at 630 for worship, for singing, for updates, for a word from North Africa. Um, and to affirm new members. You don't have to register for the members meeting. Just come for the Gospel Men's Seminar. Guys, you do need to register online for that using the website or the app. We've got a dozen things happening in the next two months. I certainly don't want to take 15 minutes and detail those for you. Let me list a few of those for you. We've got Grief Share coming up in August. That's for people who have lost a loved one. That'll be meeting here in person at church. Uh, we've got a membership class coming up. We've got a baptism class next month. We're starting for the first time a theology class on Wednesday evenings in September. We're doing a Saturday seminar in September on race, diversity, and justice. Uh, what else is happening? This Saturday coming up, we're helping a local elementary school, one that we've partnered with for several years, just clean their grounds and plant some cool plants and get ready for the fall. So all of these things you can read about in what we call the DSC Weekly. That comes out as an email on Thursdays. Easy to sign up for it. Uh, if for some reason you don't have internet at, internet at home or you don't have a smartphone or a tablet, um, then when you come in Sunday morning, pick up a printed copy at the 
uh, Connection Center. And you can kind of be old school and like your Sunday paper, sit down and before the service starts, read through what's happening here in church and what will happen in the next few months. Let's pray now for these events and let's pray for our service. Father, as men and women here in this church get ready to start studies in the next month or two, please, through their efforts around your word, centered on your son, convict, draw, give life, and fill. May there be dozens, even hundreds of gospel conversations in late summer and fall as people look to Jesus, as they behold and as they become more like him. Father, we will take bread into us, those who call on the name of Jesus, in two senses this morning. We will feast on what you have said in your word. And we will take of the bread, the literal bread, that symbolizes the broken body of Christ, broken for us. So thank you for the freedom to do this. Thank you for the privilege of doing this. Thank you for the joy of doing this. In Jesus' name, amen. Let us stand and remember all the benefits we have in Christ. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry. Everything to God in often forfeit Oh, what needless pain we bear Oh, because we do not carry everything to God in prayer Have we trials and temptations trouble anywhere we should never be discouraged take it to the Lord in prayer can we find a friend so Arms, in his arms, in his arms, he'll 
that's true, say amen. You can be seated. Oh, good morning. My name is Dave. I'm one of the non-staff pastors here. Let's pray to the Lord in light of God's mercy today. Our Father, we give you thanks. We give you eternal praise for the mercy that you have lavished on us. As your word says of believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we are now a people for your own possession so that we can proclaim your excellencies as you have called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. For we were once not a people, but now we are the people of God. We had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. Father, we did not deserve the grace and mercy shown to us at the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, that Christ would take upon himself our very sins, that he would bear in his body the just and righteous wrath that you have against sin. You have declared us righteous because of Christ and given us a new glorious identity in him. We now come boldly before the throne of grace to find help in time of need. There are many of us in our body, even today, who are struggling living in this fallen world. This morning, Father, we want to remember the poor in our community and those that struggle financially, even in this church. As a church and as individuals, by your spirit, give us a heart of compassion for our neighbor. For those that have much, that we would not have a prideful and smug attitude as though we get the credit for the riches that we have. Father, in that heart of compassion, may we not rush to judgment about the reasons and causes why someone is in the condition that they are in. Rather, Father, give all of us in this church the same compassion of our Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to follow the example of Christ who took on flesh for lowly sinners. While he was on the earth, he showed such compassion to needy sinners. All of us are recipients of your compassion. All of us have been rescued while we were ruined and given us a new position in Jesus Christ. And one day, we'll be given the rewards of all eternity with you forever and ever. Now, Father, we come to hear your word. Unsheath your sword and by your spirit, teach us that we might know more of you Know more of our Lord Jesus Christ and more of your precious Holy Spirit. That we might be changed, trusting you more and walking more obediently as we leave this place. We pray this in the matchless name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us stand and continue in prayer through song. Lord, we come to hear your word. Shine your light, unsheath your sword. Send your spirit forth in power. 
teaches, warns, consoles. Bless this feast to feed our souls. For your word, O oh Lord, we earn. Empty, let it not return. scripture passage this morning is Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11, if you've got your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, we're going to have the words up on the screen behind me. We're going to continue in our study in the parables in Luke. So this is Luke chapter 11, and we're going to be looking at verses 5 through 13. Luke chapter 11, verses 5 through 13. Let me read these verses to us. Jesus said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet Because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. 
And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? These are the words of our Lord. Let's pray one more time. God, thank you for this word, and I pray that you would unstop our ears, that you would conquer stubborn hearts, Lord, that you would help the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So as we're thinking about parables, there's another uh, very, very short parable that Jesus tells in the uh, gospel according to Matthew. Matthew chapter 13, verse 52. It's just one verse. Jesus said, Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. So he's saying that God's word is like a storehouse of treasure, and those that go to study it are like those that that bring out both old things, things that are familiar, but also new things that have been in this treasure house all along. And as as I was studying this passage this week, there was a lot of new treasure coming out for me. You know, this is a familiar parable, but one that I realized that I had been kind of misreading most of my Christian life. Uh, and so I was excited to, to have all of these new things and these new realizations come to me as I was in this parable. And, and I was encouraged. I was so encouraged by what God and what Jesus is telling us about the kingdom and about our Father through this parable. So I hope you're encouraged as well. Before we get into the parable itself, there's a bit of context that we need to have to understand this correctly. Parables don't come to us in a vacuum. This is an important principle as you are studying parables. Never, although they they stand alone just fine as little stories, little illustrations that we can meditate on all by themselves, they make much more sense, have much more meaning when you consider them in light of everything that has happened in the book around them. The gospel writers are very intentional as they are putting together their narrative to include the parables in specific places. And so you read what comes before, you read what comes after. It helps you understand the point that Jesus is trying to make with this parable. And so it is, especially with this one, as you'll see, this parable comes after Jesus teaching his disciples how to pray. So if you will, let's back up. If you've got your Bible open, let's back up to verse 1 of chapter 11. There it says, now Jesus was praying in a certain place. This is actually the sixth time that Luke's gospel mentions Jesus praying. Jesus is praying all the time. He goes off by himself to a desolate place to pray, or he goes up to the top of a mountain to pray. One time he prays all night before he calls the 12 apostles. And so this time it says he is praying in verse 11, one, or chapter 11, verse 1. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. So the disciples see Jesus going off to pray all the time, and I, I'm sure they are a bit like I am. Man, I wish I was a better prayer. Jesus, what are you doing? Teach us how we are to pray. And so in verse 2, Jesus says to them, When you pray, say, 
Father, hallowed be your name, or or let your name be holy, let your name be sanctified. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. Amen. I wonder what the disciples were thinking when Jesus told them that. Really? That's it? That's what you do all night? Just... I don't think what Jesus is giving to his disciples or to us is just uh, a prayer that we are supposed to memorize and repeat mindlessly. That's not what the the Lord's Prayer, as it's called, or or, uh, John Frame calls this the kingdom prayer, which I'm starting to like that name better, the kingdom prayer. This isn't just something that we recite to God so many times. No, this is a model prayer. As, As someone else has said, this is the alphabet of prayer. So contained in the kingdom prayer is every essential piece that you can combine and reorganize to come up with any prayer that you could ever pray. This is the fundamentals of prayer here. We praise God for who he is. We submit ourselves to his will. We ask for our daily needs. We confess our own sin. We ask God for forgiveness. We ask God for peace with one another that we would forgive one another, and then we ask for spiritual wisdom and guidance. You just take those pieces and any variation on those themes, and you could pray all night, a million different prayers. And notice, too, that this whole prayer is in the plural. Give us today our daily bread. So we are not just asking these things for ourselves, but then once we've prayed for ourselves, we turn and we ask these same things for one another, for our brothers and sisters in the church, and, and that's it. That is how we are to pray. So they have asked Jesus, teach us how to pray. He gives them these very simple instructions, and then rather than telling us more about what we should pray, he goes into explaining how we should pray, and this is what he does with this parable. So this is verses five through eight. This is the parable itself. Verse five, he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. This is where I realized that I had been misreading this parable, because you see verse 5 begins with a question. And that question goes all the way through verse 7. If you've got the ESV, you'll see there's a question mark there at the end of verse 7. And this question begins with this phrase, which of you, or who from you, is the literal translation of that. Who from you, who among you. This is a common rhetorical device that rabbis would use. This is one that Jesus uses 11 times in the Gospels. And if you look at the other 10 times that he asks a question saying, who from you, which one of you, the implied answer every time is no one. It's a rhetorical question and the implied answer is always no one. And the same is true here. So let's kind of get in our head what Jesus is describing to us. So he says, you are the disciple. okay? And he says, imagine you have a friend come to your house In the middle of the night, they've come on a long journey. Now, this would not be uncommon. 
Okay, first of all, there wasn't always a way to let somebody know ahead of time that you were coming. You couldn't just call somebody. You couldn't even just send a letter very easily. So it would be common for people to show up unannounced from a long way away. And it says he comes at the middle of, in the middle of the night. This would also not be uncommon. I mean, how many of you, you've gone on a road trip, okay, and, and you know you've got like four more hours until you're home and it's going to be a late night, but you would rather get into that bed than spend one more night on the road. Anybody relate to that? You're like, I don't care if I get in at three in the morning, I'm going to sleep in my own bed tonight. And actually what some scholars think, or, or quite a few think, that it was actually very common at this time for people to travel at night because in this part of the world especially, it's very, very hot, and so you can avoid the sun by traveling at night. But regardless, this is, the, this is the setup. You are in your house, someone knocks on the door, they're a friend that has arrived from a long journey in the middle of the night. And because you are a good, ancient, Near Eastern Jewish person, you know that the most important thing that you can do in that moment is to show hospitality. That you are obligated, obligated by God's law and obligated by social norms and customs to provide for this person who has come under your care. You must provide for them and meet their needs. Obviously, they are very, very hungry. But here's the problem. You don't have any bread. And this also would not be uncommon. This was a time before there were grocery stores and corner bakeries. So you were eating what? Daily bread. You made bread enough to sustain you for the day. So perhaps you and your family had eaten all of your bread for the day. And you had the stuff to make more bread. You were planning on making more bread the next day, so you had the food for the next day. But as it is, when your friend arrives, you've got nothing to offer. So what do you do? You have a legitimate need. And you start to remember that earlier that morning, your next-door neighbor they were baking bread. You smelled it coming in through your window, this, this tasty smell of bread. And you know that they probably had some left over by the end of the day, so your friend has bread. You need bread, your friend has bread, but it's the middle of the night. And so you know that, that your friend, your neighbor, he's got a wife, he's got kids, and just like you, they live in a house that's really just one big room, and when everybody goes to sleep, they sleep in one big mat on the floor together. And so if you got your friend up, he was going to have to get up and probably wake his kids up, and you know that the door was barred with this big metal bar, and so to take that off would be real clanking, and there's no way that you can go to his house and ask him for bread without waking everybody up, inconveniencing him. He will probably be really, really annoyed with you. And that is my worst nightmare. Anybody relate to that? I hate asking people for help, especially when I know that it's going to put them out, when it's going to inconvenience them. I just get so embarrassed, you know. So if it was me and my friend came and said, hey, just eat my arm, okay? I would rather you eat my arm than go wake up my neighbor and ask for bread. But that's what Jesus says it, that you do. You go to your friend's house, you go to your neighbor's house, and you knock on the door. And now here's where the rhetorical question comes in that Jesus is asking. Because your neighbor is also an ancient Near Eastern Jew. You're going to knock on the door, and he's he going to say, go away. We're already in bed. This is inconvenient. I'm not going to help you. Is that what your neighbor would say? The implied answer is, of course not. None of you who went to go ask a neighbor for help, even if it was in the middle of the night, would they refuse you? Because that's just not 
how it works. Now, that doesn't mean that he's going to help you with a lot of love in his heart at that moment. doesn't mean he's going to help you because he has very fond feelings towards you, but he is going to help you. And this is what Jesus says in verse 8. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. Now, we've got to talk about that word impudence. If you came in here this morning knowing what impudence means, good for you. Because this is a, not a word that we use in English. You've got a King James version of your Bible that renders that word importunity, which I have even less of an idea what that means. But this word is obviously very, very important. In Greek, this is a very rare word. Actually, in the New Testament, this is the only time that this word is used. And so we need to be kind of careful in how we understand what this word means. It means we have to kind of look outside of the Bible to get a good understanding of what this word means in Greek. Now, some people... They want to say that this word that's translated here, impudence, it has a sense of persistence to it. In fact, this is another way that I misunderstood this parable, is that I thought this had a sense of persistence to it. So I kind of imagined in my head what happened was a friend comes to the door, he knocks, and then the guy inside says, go away, which he wouldn't say, but that's what I thought, go away. And so the friend is persistent, and he keeps on knocking, and he keeps on shouting, and he keeps on, keeps on, keeps on, until finally he wears his friend down, and his friend comes and helps him. But that's actually not what this word means. It's not what this word is trying to get at. In Greek, it's the word anaidea. Whenever it's used outside of the Bible, it means, well, literally, shameless. That's what the word means, without shame or without embarrassment. So that word means shamelessness. It even has a connotation of rudeness. And if you were to look up the word impudence, you would actually see that that's what the word impudent means, is that you are shameless even to the point of being rude. So I think a more common word that we can use in English, if you wanted to scratch out whatever word you have in there and write a word that you probably have some meaning for, is the word audacity. I think that's a good word that we can use here, audacity. This is actually how the NIV translates it. So verse 8 NIV says, I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. So we put all this together, and what, what is Jesus saying in this parable? He is saying, even your neighbor, even at midnight, even though it's annoying and inconvenient, even he will get up and meet your needs if you just have the audacity to ask. So how much more God? How much more our God? That is the point of this parable. This is a parable about what God is like. And now when I say that, that doesn't mean that Jesus isn't asking us also to identify with a man asking for bread, which is itself remarkable. What Jesus is saying in this parable is that we should go to God audaciously and ask God audaciously. We shouldn't feel any shame or embarrassment when we come to God and ask God for things. Big things, the biggest things, even weirdly specific things. I was reminded of a friend this week that, that used to do this, and, and I always thought it was a little weird, but also kind of cool, is he would pray for really, really specific things. And a lot of times it would happen. I would see it happen, that he just had the audacity to ask God for big, very, very specific things. 
And so we can go to God without embarrassment asking for those things, but we can also go to God without embarrassment asking for the littlest things, the things that we think are, are insignificant. They're not insignificant, insignificant to God. So you can go without embarrassment and ask God for anything. As, as Dave prayed, that we can approach the throne of grace with confidence in our time of need. But I think the point of this parable is that that audacity with which we can approach God, it's not something that we muster up in ourselves. Like, like we just try to make ourselves really brave before we go to God and ask him for things. No, that audacity arises because we understand the character of our God. We know what our God is like. We know that we have a God who wants us to come and ask for things. We have a God who is not like this neighbor. And even if this neighbor would help in a grouchy way, oh, God stands ready to answer our every request. God, God doesn't get angry at us. He doesn't get annoyed by us. God is not too busy doing other things. Psalm 121 says that God never sleeps nor slumbers. God is just always ready, waiting for you to come and ask. And when you ask, when you ask audaciously, he'll give. That's what makes verses 9 through 10 so beautiful. This is a promise that Jesus gives us, verses 9 and 10. I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. I mean, come on, y'all. What an amazing promise that our God is making, this promise that comes from this open-handed, open-hearted God. He is giving us a standing invitation. Do you get that? Come and ask for anything, whatever you need, day or night. You're not going to bother me. Come and ask, and I'm ready. I will give. The language in this is just so emphatic. It begins Jesus saying, me, I'm telling you. And then it's so emphatic that he just repeats himself. Did you see, verse 10 is just the same thing as verse 9, said another way. So Jesus is like trying to underline this. Ask and you will receive. It's going to happen because our God is such a generous and gracious God. And that's the attitude that the more we think about God, the way that God is, the more ready we are to just come and ask for things. We know that we have a need and we don't even hesitate to just, just be bold and just say, God, I need this. We need this. And he'll give it. And also in this language, something that's a little harder to see in English, but I think is just so cool is that this is actually written in such a way that it would be continuous. Ask and keep on asking. Seek and keep on seeking. Knock and keep on knocking. Not, not again in that way where it's like persistent, like we have to wear God down. That's the point. You don't wear God down. God is already ready to help you with everything that you need. But no, we ask over and over again for anything and everything. We just keep on coming back around to God's door. Anytime we have something coming up, we just come on back and we ask God. We are constantly coming to God and asking. That's a Christian. And it's an incredible promise that Jesus makes. Ask and you will receive. And so that may raise some questions for us about the nature of prayer. How does, how does prayer really work? Even the nature of God 
and what we believe to be true about God and his attributes? How do we kind of fit these things together with this abundant promise that whatever we ask, we will receive? Because, you know, like when Jesus says in Matthew, your heavenly father already knows what you need before you ask. So how does that fit in with us coming then and, and asking? Or, or what about unanswered prayers? Have you ever had one of those? How does that fit with what Jesus says here? Ask and you will receive. Well, I know I have asked for things, even really good things, that I haven't received. So is Jesus lying here? What else is going on? And then you step back. I know some of you guys, I know some of you guys, you're thinking, but God has already decreed from the beginning to the end everything that is going to happen throughout human history. And so how do our prayers have anything to do with God's unchanging decrees? These are all really good questions. I have to say, sometimes when I consider prayer, I'm just struck by the mystery of this all. And we have to be okay with that as Christians. We have to be okay with a little bit of mystery, with a little bit of a glorious tension. If you remember, we've talked about that, how, how seemingly incompatible things are both said to be true. And prayer is one of those things where God's thoughts are just a little higher than our thoughts. Not just a little higher, a lot higher. But I think there's two important things that we need to keep in mind when we ask about prayer and the nature of prayer. The first is that although God has preordained everything, God is sovereign over everything, he has declared from the beginning what will be at the end, even though he is sovereign and has declared, preordained, decreed how everything in history is going to play out down to the spinning of every last atom. God has not only ordained the ends, but he has also ordained the means of bringing about those ends. And here's the incredible thing, church. Your prayers are a means that God has preordained to bring about his glorious ends. How cool is that? Your prayers are the means that God has decreed to bring about his glorious ends. It's, it's very similar to evangelism. Okay, God, before the foundations of the world, had already decreed the church to be elect and saved in Jesus Christ. He had already determined who would be united to Christ by faith before the world even existed. So that was him declaring the end from the beginning, and yet God has also determined to use the means of his disciples sharing the gospel and making disciples in order to save the elect whom he has chosen in Christ before the foundations of the world. So he uses us as a means of bringing the gospel to those whom he has already elected for salvation in the same way he uses your prayers as a means of bringing about his ends. And so what this also means is that he has ordained to use as a means your lack of prayer to bring about his ends so that we can read James 4.2 and know that this is true. You do not have because you do not ask. There are things that God would give you if you would but ask. And because you are not asking, he is not giving them to you. And that's true because God hears and responds to our prayers as a means to bringing about his end. So even your sinful prayerlessness is a means that God uses to bring about the ends that he has determined. And we know that's not a justification for sin. Instead, this is an encouragement to you that God will use your prayers as a means. So ask, and you will receive according to his good purposes. And so this helps me to understand those unanswered prayers that we were talking about. 
Because there are going to be things that, that God says no to, or not yet, or not quite. But we know that the reason that God is responding in that way is because he is using everything to work together to bring about his good purposes. And so even our prayers sometimes, we're not praying the right things. Isn't this what Paul says in Romans chapter 8? That, that sometimes we don't know how to pray as we ought. And so the Holy Spirit intercedes for us on our behalf. J.I. Packer said it really well, that God fixes our prayers on the way up. Because sometimes we think we know what we should be asking for, and God knows we're actually asking for the wrong thing. And so even in those cases, God is actually responding according to the prayers that we should be praying. This is what Tim Keller says, that we can be sure our prayers are answered precisely in the way we would want them to be answered if we knew everything that God knows. So when we pray, we think we're asking, we're trying to ask according to God's will, but sometimes we're, we're off, we don't know, but God is always going to answer our prayers the way that we ought to be praying them. The Holy Spirit is interceding for us on our behalf, and he is providing for us according to God's perfect will so that everything that we receive from God works together for our good, ultimately, and for the good purposes that God has for the whole creation. So that's the first big idea, that your prayers are a means to bring about the ends that God has determined. And the second big idea is this. Going back, okay, how do we think about prayer? What do we need to know about prayer, the nature of prayer that makes sense of what Jesus is teaching us here? The second big idea is that prayer is as much about shaping our own hearts as it is about getting our needs met from God. So another reason that we pray is because prayer shapes our hearts, it shapes our worship. So it was the Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard that said, prayer doesn't change God, it changes the one who prays. By that he means the same thing that we've been talking about. God's decrees don't change from the beginning to the end, and yet when we pray, it does a transforming work in our own heart. And so this is why Jesus again says, Ask, keep asking, because in prayer itself, we are being taught, we are being instructed, we are being shaped, we are being given an understanding, a right understanding of how it is that we worship God. So go back to the kingdom prayer. Go back to the prayer at the very beginning that started this whole chapter. The kingdom prayer, to put it very, very simply, is assuming a posture of submission and dependence on God. That's why Jesus taught us to pray that way. You cannot pray the Lord's Prayer without also assuming a posture of submission to God's will and expressing your dependence on God for everything that you need. And we know that God is good. His will is sovereign and he works everything together for good. We know that God will already give us what we need before we ask. He knows what we need, but we need to know that. We need to remember that. So the less we pray, the less we worship God. The less we pray, the less we worship God. Because when we don't pray, we start to think that we are sovereign. We start to think that we are the one that's in control, that we are the one that has the perfect will and knows what is good and what is bad, and that we are the one that can provide for ourselves. That's what happens when we don't pray. Or you don't pray and you get incredibly anxious. Are you fearful? Are you anxious? How much are you praying? Because when we pray, we are remembering 
that God is the giver of everything that we need. And that if we don't have it, we don't need it. And God will care for us. So Jesus teaches us to pray so that our hearts stay tethered to God. And the more we worship God rightly, the more we are tethered to God, the more then we actually know what we should be asking for. Because again, when Jesus says, ask and you will receive, well, we know that that doesn't mean that God is like Santa Claus or he's a genie in a bottle, that literally anything that we ask for, he is just going to give to us. We think of James chapter 4, verse 3. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions or to spend it on yourself. Okay, so we know that, that there's a wrong way, there are wrong things that we can ask for. And so how do we know what the right things to ask for are? Well, we start worshiping God more. We start worshiping God more through prayer. And as our hearts change, we start to know what it is that we need to be asking for. And what is that? Go back to the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come. A mature Christian understands and knows that the most important thing, that the greatest thing that we can be asking for is to God to, for, for God to bring about his kingdom, to bring about his reign in all the earth, to bring about his reign more over our own hearts. God already reigns. He has never stopped reigning, and yet there are lots of enemies. There is lots of opposition in this fallen world, even in our own hearts. And so when we pray, God, your kingdom come, what we're asking is for his reign to be more manifested, for, those, for that opposition to be more and more put down, for, for people that are in rebellion against God to turn into submission to God, and in our own hearts where we are still sinful and, and in rebellion ourselves, that we would more and more come to submit to God in his kingdom. And so when we're asking, we're really asking for that. We're asking for God's kingdom to come, for God's kingdom purposes to be accomplished and then you say you know what I need bread on the way to bringing about your kingdom I need bread on this journey while your kingdom is coming so God give me that bread as a means to that end of your kingdom coming God I really believe that I need a spouse as this kingdom purposes are being fulfilled in my own life and so God I'm asking for a spouse so that your kingdom would come God I really think that if I had this job it would help me to work for your kingdom, to seek your kingdom. So God, I'm asking for this job, for that purpose. But in these things we're asking, we're asking rightly because we're asking for God's kingdom to come and we're seeing all these other things as just a tool for that purpose. That's how you ask rightly. That's how you avoid asking wrongly so that you can spend it on your own passions. And this is what Jesus is teaching us to do is to come to God asking rightly and to hold on to this promise that if we ask rightly, he's gonna give it. There's not going to be anything that you need that God is going to say, no, I don't really, I'm tired, I don't want to do that, you know, I only have so much, you know. No, he says, ask, ask, keep asking and I'll give it to you as long as you're asking by faith and you're asking rightly. And we know that that's true because God is better than that neighbor. God is better than a friend at midnight. In fact, God is our heavenly father. And that's our last point, verses 11 to 13, this principle that Jesus gives to us. So we had a parable, we have a promise, and here's a principle. Verse 11, what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish, give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? And this is another one of those examples, a who from you question, rhetorical question. So the implied answer is what? No one. 
Which one of you fathers would do this ridiculous thing? None of you. Your child whom you love comes and they ask you for something that they need. They ask you for, for food. And instead of giving them food, you're going to give them something that would hurt them. What father would do that? None of you. And out of that principle comes this greater principle. Verse 13, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So notice, if you haven't, that Jesus has intensified the relationship. It was a neighbor, it was a friend, now it's a father. God says all of that love, all of that tenderness, all of that provision, all of that care that you see exampled in a human father in their relationship with their own child, that's how we are to think about God. And that actually that, that human relationship of the father to the child, it is evil by comparison to the love that our heavenly father has for his children. It's evil. Even a really good relationship. And I know so many of you fathers in this church, you are trying to be good fathers. You are good fathers. But you're not perfect fathers. You still sin. I know that I sin. I know that I am not always just quick to bless my children with whatever it is that they ask. And I know some of you had dads that were actually evil, legitimately evil, that they seemed to delight in giving you scorpions instead of food. And for you too, I say, what a comfort for all of us with the most evil dads and those of us who as hard as we try still prove to be evil dads that we have a perfect heavenly father. Amen? A perfect heavenly father. And you see how this forms just this beautiful bookend in this chapter that it begins with the Lord's prayer and how does the Lord's prayer start? Father. And here at the end, he, he says, think about this more. Think about what it means that God is your father. And we, we hear this language so much, we forget how, how revolutionary this is, how radical this is. It's not even much in the Old Testament that God is, is talked about as a father, certainly not addressed as my father. But that's how Jesus teaches us to pray, to call God father. J.I. Packer, again, in, in his little book, Knowing God, little book, it's a big book. I don't know why I called it a little book. Good luck with knowing God. But Packer writes this, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. This idea of God being our Father. Or another illustration is one that Timothy Keller uses to think about a king. Think about a king who's sitting on his throne and, and he is this fearsome, intimidating sovereign. Or you can think of King Ahasuerus in the book of Esther, right? This king that, that nobody could even come into the room without permission or they would be put to death. You don't just walk up to the king and ask him for things unless you're the king's child. The king's child can come into the king's bedroom in the middle of the night and ask him for a glass of water because it's his father. 
And that's how God is teaching us to come to him, to pray to him that this is our heavenly father. And you know what a good father looks like. We all have an understanding. We all have a category of what a good father is. And Jesus says, how much more your heavenly father will he give you what you need if you ask audaciously? And so this is really important that I stress this point. We are not all born God's children. We are reborn God's children. The language that the Bible uses is that we are adopted by God. We are adopted into God's family, which means that we were at one point part of a different family, and we were an evil family, the family of Adam. And our good heavenly father, he only has one only begotten son, Jesus Christ. And what Jesus has done for us with his work on the cross is made a way for us to be adopted into God's family, that we can have the full rights of being the children of God. And remember, we looked at this in Galatians chapter 4. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters. And because you are sons and daughters, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. We've been adopted, and so we come to God like his children. But if you haven't believed in Jesus, then you are not in God's family. If you not, have not believed in the work that Jesus did on the cross, dying for your sins so that you can be adopted, then instead what happens between you and God is not that you can come to God and ask with confidence anything and everything that you ever want. No, Isaiah chapter 59 says that your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear you. So if you're in here and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, you haven't believed in the gospel that we believe, I'm sorry, God is not hearing your prayers because they're not offered in faith. And why would he? Because you're not praying for his kingdom to come. He's not your king. He's not your father. But he can be. He can be. All you have to do is believe in Jesus. All you have to do is say, I want to be adopted into God's family. And Jesus is the one way that that can happen. And then you come, and as soon as you are brought into the family, then you have all of the rights and privileges of a son or daughter of God. And he will give whatever you ask especially the Holy Spirit. This is the last little thing Jesus says. If you fathers know how to give good gifts, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? This is an important little detail. If you were going to read the, the gospel according to Matthew, you would see that Matthew includes a very, very similar saying of Jesus, except there Jesus says, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So Matthew is, is putting the emphasis on our material needs and on our physical needs, the things that we need. And he says, of course, if you fathers provide for your children, how much more will God provide for you and everything that you need? But here in Luke, Luke replaces good gifts with Holy Spirit. God, your Father, will give you the Holy Spirit. And that's not to say that, that Luke is taking anything away from Matthew. In fact, I think Jesus said both of these things just at different times. He was probably repeating himself 
all of the time. So of course, like Matthew says, God wants to give you good gifts, but Luke says, you know what? There's the greatest gift, and it's the Holy Spirit. And this is something else. Like a mature Christian knows that the greatest thing that we can be asking for is the kingdom to come. We also know that the greatest need that we have is for God's very presence with us, and we have that. It's that spirit that teaches us to cry out, Abba, Father, it's that, it's that spirit that applies all of the graces and all of the blessings of God to our life and seals us for eternal life. It's that same spirit. It's the greatest gift that a father could give. And if we ask, God gives it. And he gives it more and more the more we ask. This is what John MacArthur said. You ask for comfort. You pray to God for comfort. Well, he gives you the comforter, his Holy Spirit. You ask for help, he gives you the helper. You ask for truth, he gives you the truth teacher. You ask for power, he gives you the spirit of power. You ask for wisdom, he gives you the spirit of wisdom. You ask for guidance, he gives you the guide. You ask for love, joy, peace, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, self-control, and he gives you the spirit whose fruit are released in your life. This is the generosity of God. You ask for the gift, he gives you the giver. You ask for the effect, he gives you the cause. You ask for the product, he gives you the source. How much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Amen. So what we're going to do now is we're going to turn to taking the Lord's Supper together. And if there was ever any question that our God is a giving God, we come to this meal where we see the body and the blood of Jesus represented by this bread and this juice and God giving us what we need most in his son. Because every one of us, every one of us who is a Christian has at some point been awakened to the fact that we are sinners and we are in need. And what faith is, is coming to, to God and saying, give me the bread of life. And he's given it to us. Amen? He's given it to us in Jesus. And by that, given us his Holy Spirit. So when we take this meal, we just come again and we express our own neediness. We express our dependence and our submission to God's will. And we receive what God has given us. We feast by faith on this glorious gospel. So what we're going to do is we're going to sing a song. And then I'll come back up here and we will take these elements. But before we do that, I want to say and address again, those of you who have not believed in Jesus, if you're, if you're in this room, I'm so glad that you're here. I'm so glad that you're hearing these things. There's not a better place for you to be. But when we take this meal, what we're saying is we have received something from God. And if you haven't believed in Jesus, then you haven't received what we're saying that we have received. If you haven't believed in Jesus, you haven't asked yet for the most important thing that you can ask for, the forgiveness of sins. And so when we take this meal to celebrate what God has given to us in Christ, I would say, you, non-believer, just leave the elements aside if you already had them and think about this. Think about that separation. And think about how good and gracious is our God that he wants to come near to you. He wants to be your father. He wants there to be no separation, not even a door to knock on. His presence with you forever but you have to ask for that.
So as we participate in this meal, you can just pray right there. Prayers of faith, I pray. And for the rest of us, like I said, after we sing, we will take this. So if you didn't grab the elements on the way in during the song, please go up there outside of those doors. But let me pray right now, and then Drew will come up here and sing. Lord, we thank you for being our good Father. We thank you that you have provided everything that we need in Jesus. That you have forgiven us of our sins through his death on the cross. You've given us the hope of eternal life through his resurrection that you have given us this seal, the guarantee of our salvation by giving us your very spirit. And I pray that you would fill us with your spirit even more now, that we would be filled up to worship you rightly, to think rightly about you, and that we would desire most of all for your kingdom to come. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us stand and respond. sons and daughters sing adopted through the blood god sent his son redeeming now the curse has been undone now the curse has been undone he set us free once slaves to sin and captive under now faith has come and acted Our freedom has been secure Our freedom has been secure Heirs, heirs of the promise we will sing
lifted through the blood. God sent his son redeemed. Now the curse has been undone. Now the curse has been undone. If you believe that, say amen. You can be seated. So if you have your bread, would you get it ready, get it in your hands? I was thinking about when Jesus was in the, in the garden after the, the Last Supper, and, and he prayed, God, if it would be your will, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Same thing that Jesus taught us to pray. He prayed himself, Lord, your will be done. And what Jesus knew is that though there in that moment he was asking God for bread, he would take the scorpion on our behalf. He would take the cross for us, offering his perfect body and blood for our evil body and blood. And by that we would be redeemed. The price would be paid in full and we would be his children. And so we remember on the night that he was betrayed, he, he took bread, and after he had broken it and given it to his disciples, he said, this is my body given, given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take and eat. And in the same way, he took the cup, representing the cup of wrath that he would drink and the cup of peace, the cup of fellowship that we would have with God and with one another. He took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes take and drink let's pray yes Lord we do remember this work that you have done on our behalf this new covenant that you have made with us in your blood and we thank you we're so glad we are so glad that we have a God as good as you are that we can come to and ask and that if you gave us your own son we know that you wouldn't hold any other good thing back from us so thank you for teaching us that through this meal and Lord I pray that you would encourage us as we go that we would be sustained by this gospel until that day you come again in Jesus name we pray amen let us stand now to proclaim his death Proclaim his grace. I once was lost in darkest night, yet thought I knew the way. The sin that promised joy and life had led me to. But 
He is all we have. He is all we need. And if you don't have Christ, you don't have anything. But you can. Our God is so generous. He wants to give you his son. You just have to receive him by faith. And if you want to do that right now, you can. If you have questions about that right now, come ask them. Ask about this good gift of the gospel in Jesus. You can ask the pastors that we have here at the front or just ask the people that have been singing so loudly around you. They can tell you all about what a good gift Jesus Christ is. Now, you church, let me remind you before you go of our members meeting on Wednesday, please make every effort to be there. And I send you out reminding you again of this promise, this promise from Jesus. I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you for everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and to the one who knocks it will be opened. You're dismissed.